Burrow is a furniture company known for timeless design and thoughtful construction, and free shipping, and that extends to their outdoor collection. Their outdoor furniture is built to withstand the elements, featuring rust-proof stainless steel hardware, weather-ready teak, and quick-dry foam cushions. For Memorial Day, get 15% off your Burrow purchase at burrow.com slash ACAST and up to 25% off outdoor. That's up to 25% off outdoor furniture at burrow.com slash ACAST. Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else, even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Hey, it's Paige DeSorbo from Giggly Squad. High quality fashion without the price tag. Say hello to Quince. I'm snagging high-end essentials like cozy cashmere sweaters, sleek leather jackets, fine jewelry, and so much more. With Quince being 50 to 80% less than similar brands. And they partner with factories that prioritize safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. I love that. Luxury quality within reach. Go to quince.com slash style to get free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. Quince.com slash style. Hello and welcome to the Nyler Nine podcast. It's myself and Andrea Cleary here and we're going to be talking about uh, a special topic today. Andrea, how are you? I'm good, thank you, Niall. How are you? Good, good. Good! Uh, nice to be back on the pod this week uh, now that summer is officially over and over. Uh, that hot weather is gone. It was actually too hot last week to do anything. Thank you. It was too hot. It was horrible. I was, I was cat-sitting for a friend of the show, Carlo. Um, and just thank God they had a fan in their apartment because I would have I would have melted otherwise. Um, but I was spending the week with a with a lovely cat, which is lovely. Yeah, but um, too hot. Certainly not a complaint about the weather for me. I I enjoy it, but also it was just there was points last week where this house that I live in it was so hot that I was like I can't I have to go I have to leave yeah. this house. Yeah, but then uh, you go outside and it's heat. the same temperature out there. There's nothing yeah, you can yeah. do except stand by the fridge. <laughs> That's yeah, it. exactly. <laughs> we resorted to putting like little ice cubes on the cat's heads because mm. uh, they they don't know how to ask for it, but they're definitely too warm and they're like hiding under the couches and stuff. And you're like, mm. this is gas. Uh, I'm as hot as they are. But we're going to talk about a hot topic on this week's podcast, episode 226. And um, we're going to talk about a very interesting story, maybe a story like no other about a band from the late 80s, early 90s who... Feature two British men, a, a Scotsman called Bill Drummond and an Englishman, Jimmy Cotty, who created a notorious music project that topped the charts, aggravated the art world, upset the capitalists, annoyed the record industry and almost everyone else in its wake. That is, of course, the KLF, a.k.a. the Justified Ancients of Moo Moo, a.k.a. the Jams, a.k.a. the Time Lords. Um, other musicians have been known as provocateurs before, but the KLF were on a whole other level because they became a massive chart success uh, while posing questions about the validity of art, original ideas, creativity, commerce and capitalism. 
This is a story of a band who did things like no one else, who had number one hits, who created art installations, defaced billboards, made cryptic advertisements, gave manic performances on top of the pops, fired machine gun blanks into the audience, became known as pranksters, and blew all their money in one notorious stunt. KLF is gonna rock you. That is 3am Eternal from the KLF. Now, I guess the, the interesting thing about KLF in terms of their story is that the music is only really a part of it. It, it did enable them a lot to do what they wanted to do. Now, uh, we are taking, I ended up picking this episode a topic because I ended up watching the Who Killed the KLF uh, documentary from 2021, which Andrea has now seen as well. We're going to be using that as our kind of a frame and a guide in which to explore this really interesting story. And it's a story that poses more than it's like what happens when two people who kind of are outsiders and who are thinking outside the box um, get put inside the industry box and uh, have to figure out and um, what it is they want and what they want to say with their art and um, especially in the early 80s late 90s early 90s late 80s early 90s there was a lot of people who were not happy that two men who made a lot of money were making questionable decisions with it and also um yeah i think it's really interesting we've got a week of a lot to discuss i think on the klf let's start it with the with the start uh, Bill Drummond uh, is a Scotsman uh, who was a manager for Echo and the Bunny Men and acts like the teardrop explodes. He played guitar in a Liverpool band, uh, Big in Japan, as well. He became an A and R person, um, but when he, like he always had this kind of abstract abstract thinking into the way he approached things. In the documentary, it talks about how when he set up a tour of the Orkney Islands for Echo and the Bunny Men, his way of rooting that show. But the tour dates was to draw a set of bunny ears across uh, the Orkney Islands. And that's how the route that they took, the band took. So he was uh, a critic of himself and critic of the bands he worked with. He left the music industry in 1986 um, after managing those bands for quite a while. In the documentary, he says he uh, did quite, uh, it made a lot of questions of decisions. And that's probably something which quite <laughs> continues throughout his career. Um, in 1987, he, him and Jimmy Cotty uh, formed a band and wanted to make a hip-hop record. Well, Cotty had previously been in a terrible pop band called Brilliant, who Drummond had actually signed uh, as an A&R person. And Cotty was an illustrator of J.R.R. Tolkien posters, uh, one of which was the best-selling poster in the world for eight years. Just one of the random facts that comes in uh, around the KLF. And one of the facts when when I was watching the documentary that I was like, I don't know if that's true. <laughs> Yeah, yeah, yeah. They, they but actually, anything. I remember that. I remember that poster. I, I, remember, I, I know it. the poster. Yeah, I just anyway, I have a question I like, mark I like about who it, designed it. It was but... certainly used. <laughs> yeah. Um, in the in the documentary at the start, Bill Drummond says, "We never set out at all to be this global, international, multi-successful dance pop crossover, whatever it was. It was never part of the game plan." 
we should say up front that this documentary is not made by the KLF and was made without their blessing and permission, according to the Wikipedia page. Again, question oh, marks yeah, over yeah. that. But the when when we say that Jimmy and Bill are talking, these are uh, tapes that have been unearthed sort of thing. So it might be a self-mythologizing thing. It might be genuinely that they've absolutely nothing to do with it. But um, but as as we understand that they've nothing to do with the documentary. They, they are pretty happy, I think, as people to let people speculate. And also, I mean, the truth of what they do a lot of the time is in question. And that is part of their story mm-hmm. as well. And it's like, is it a myth? Is it is it real? Well, well, we'll get to it. We'll get to it. Um, on New Year's Day 1987, Bill Drum was at home with his parents after leaving the music industry. And he was going for a walk. And uh, it was a bright blue sky. And he thought... I really want to make a hip hop record. And so to do this, he thought, how, how can I make a hip hop record? Who can I make a hip hop record with? He wasn't brave enough to do it, to do it himself. So he thought, oh, although I can play guitar, I can knock out a few things on the piano. I knew nothing personally about the technology. And I thought I knew Jimmy. I knew he was like a uh, spirit like me. We, we share similar tastes and backgrounds and music and things. So I phoned him up that day and said, let's form a band called the Justified Ancients of Moo Moo. And he knew exactly what I meant to kind of phrase where I was coming from. Within a week, we had recorded our first single. So the music they had made in those early years uh, clearly took inspiration from hip hop and the art of sampling and would later develop into this bombastic form of stadium house music and trance music with big chords and and pop melodies that um, just was big everything. It had a lot of um, it had a lot of big noise in it it had a lot of uh, crowd noise it was if it was designed that's where the stadium stuff comes from but in the early days and the very first album that they released was 1987 called what the fuck is going on this is where their desire to do things that kind of upset people um started it is an 11 track album and it features a lot of samples it features like the likes of mc5 there is unlisted samples of television programs including top of the pops there is uh, ambient noise from a London underground station, the monkeys. Here is a track, uh, a bit of a track called uh, Don't Take Five, Take What You Want. So that is Don't Take Five, uh, Take What You Want from the album What the Fuck Is Going On. It's not the most notorious one uh, song on that uh, record because the one that was the most prominent was actually a song called The Queen and I. Now, in the early days, they were, Cotty and Drummond were fully aware of, you know, copyright law and all that kind of stuff. But despite that, they made a song called The Queen and I, a derogatory political rap about the state of democracy in the UK, which samples the entire chorus of one of the most recognisable songs known to man, Abba's Dancing Queen, and pairs it with some baby noises. Here is a bit of that. When I was younger, I knew 
you just who to hate From the teachers in our classroom to the leaders of our state I'm registered to vote, this pleasant land's free So I took the intercity for democracy and me I knocked at the door but they didn't let me in So I kicked it down and I walked right in She was standing at the box while Healy cut his crust Question time, Mikey Buck! Yeah, that's annoying. <laughs> and that it. was the song that allowed them to uh, start off their career of notoriety in many ways. Because Bill Drummond says being a manager obviously knew the copyright laws that went that happened around uh, making studio music. He said the uh, ABBA were not happy with this record. They were certainly not fans of it. They didn't like the way it was uh, handled. And the uh, MCPS, that is the Mechanical Copyright Protection Society, got in touch with them and ordered all the masters and all copies destroyed because it was illegal and they didn't have permission. And all copies in the shop recalled. So in an attempt to avoid a court case, the, the two men decided to comply with this. But first they would try to meet ABBA and convince them that it was okay that they could do this that was creatively okay so their idea was they would go to sweden and they took an enemy journalist and a photographer along with them because they were an industrious sort of folk who were always keen had a keen eye with publicity this is essentially a publicity stunt so uh, jimmy caught he had a, a galaxy v8 ford police car that was used a lot in their music videos and stuff um very iconic kind of look to it and that's apparently how they got there uh, took a, a ferry then as well. They said, Bill Drummond says, if we made the stance of actually going to Sweden to meet them, it would have looked good for us in court and wouldn't have cost us as much. Made very sa- sound financial advice to go there. Of course, thing, things didn't go as planned. The justified entrance of Mumu and their guests took the ferry to Sweden, drove cost country to Stockholm, where they presented a gold disc in recognition of sales in excess of zero, not to ABBA, but to a blonde sex worker outside ABBA's studio at 3am, the only per- person they could find who looked even remote like one of members of ABBA. Uh, having done this, they stopped in a Swedish field on the way back to uh, build a fire out of the uns and uh, burn all of the unsold copies, something that which will come back later on in terms of burning stuff. As they returned to the uh, car to drive off, an irate Swedish farmer apparently appeared and uh, started, um, who was not happy with the acrid black smoke um, coming out of his field, who apparently uh, fired a shotgun uh, at the, uh, the car as it drove off which uh, promptly uh, needed uh, some repair um, but yeah so I think on the ferry home um, they played their only live date ever uh, before that uh, as the Justified Ancient Mumu uh, for a Toblerone bar and chucked some of the copies of the LP into the sea so this is kind of uh, the start of the the pranks and the myths and the myth making that KLF did uh, there was also a thing they did with the Face magazine. It's like So, as a postscript to all this LP destruction, the KLF took out a full-page ad in the Face magazine, offering to sell five remaining unplayed copies for £1,000 each. They said, We were browsing around this record shop near our studios and came across five copies of the song, or of the album. Now that we know that since the MCPS uh, affair last year, they've been selling for between 30 and £75. Uh, pounds. We bought all five. The advert in the Face magazine, uh, because was because we thought its readers would be familiar with our work and aware of our existence. They might also be rash enough to pay that much, but I don't think sounds readers would. It was a calculated gamble. Uh, advert itself cost about 1,300 quid. 
so if no one bought them, they seriously out of pocket. But fortunately, they sold two and had offers on the third. Uh, we found this loophole in this agreement. Although we were ordered to destroy all the remaining copies, we made it perfectly clear to the MCPS that we couldn't actually force the shops to send their LP back. Some actually did, and they were destroyed. So because we bought them in a shop, those LPs don't come into the agreement, and we can do what we like with them and not break any laws. So there was a big part of this uh, story, certainly, is uh, just like rubbing up against what's acceptable by society, mm. what the laws that are established around us. And I think that's a lot of what they do. And I think the next biggest thing they did after that was, uh, well, they got a number one hit. They got a number one hit with a big novelty record. <laughs> the a only big, thing big I knew record. that they had done before going into this. Right. I, I, okay. I'd never heard of anything to do with the KLF, nothing at all. And when Harry was describing them to me, he was like naming their songs and like, oh, do you not know about the the burning thing? And blah, blah. I was like, no. Um, and they were like, do you know the the Time Lords? And I was like, yeah. <laughs> he was like, that's them. Yeah. <laughs> okay, well, let's let's play a bit of this song. There's a massive story about this, um, and I think it's it comes with a essentially what is called the manual. Um, they followed a number of rules on how to make an, a hit number one record. They were inspired by Stock Aitken and Waterman, who are a hit factory machine late eighties, mid 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 to late eighties, who released responsible for like producing records from Kylie, Bananarama, Mel and Kim, Dead or Alive. You spin me round like a record. That's one of theirs. Never going to give you up by Rick Astley, and uh, one of theirs as well. They were quite influential in the UK and they were essentially a hit factory. Everything they touched turned to gold. What they did, they turned, uh, they took underground club hits and kind of a tallow disco melodies, really, and turned them into more accessible club or like pop hits. So these were pop hits that were inspired by high energy disco music, Motown lyrics, Italo disco melodies. There's a really interesting episode, I think, in that as well, talking about that uh, period of that how they cornered that market and just made massive money out of uh, from 1984 to 1989 even two unlimited as well uh, was one of their uh, hits uh, so they took inspiration the the time lords aka jimmy Cotty and bill drummond took inspiration from and um, but they took it further they in 1988 they released a song called doctor and the tardis by the time lords that went to number one it was a complete novelty hit featuring Three kind of main elements. It's a mashup of the Doctor Who theme music, the Gary Glitter rock and roll beat, and sections from a song called Blockbuster by The Sweet. Here they are uh, as they get on to Top of the Pops and, and hit number one. Here is the audio from there. And we have a brand new number one on Top of the Pops this week. Is it a bird? Is it a plane? No, it's a car. Hear the Time Lords.
So that is the Time Lords and uh, the <laughs> KLF uh, Doctrine. The Tardis is the name of the track, as you can hear there. It's got the Gary Glitter beat. It's got glam uh, written all over it. It's got the uh, Doctor Who theme music. It's silly. It's a novelty record. But it worked really well. And, and the other thing that these guys were really good at was presenting themselves. They presented themselves in a really interesting way. They they dressed up kind of as weird doctors or glam rock musicians and and they were very good at like building stages around them from their entire career their music videos are actually insanely good because they are the kind of people who spent the money that they earned on their uh, music videos and you can see it there's a a record that they released called uh, what time is love and oh my god the video for that is insane it's shot on this like in pinewood studios or something it's on a boat they're all there's all these people hanging off this like kind of a uh, um, Viking boat kind of thing. It's insane. So it really is worth seeing that. Here is a bit of that song that uh, was released shortly afterwards. A song called "What Time Is Love." What time is love? So after this, the um, what happened with the uh, the Time Lords was, I mean, that was very clearly a uh, once-off uh, novelty hit, and they would go on to release music as the KLF. But before we get there, in 1988, one of the most interesting parts of the story for me is uh, the manual. So the manual was a little book booklet that they wrote called How to Have a Number One the Easy Way, which the following year after the uh, the song went to number one in the UK, number four in Ireland. We didn't weren't quite as uh, enamored with it as the UK was. Um, but following the release of Doctrine and Tardis, they wrote this book. So the manual claims to be a step-by-step guide to creating a number one hit without the necessity of any funds or talent. <laughs> so what they do is say, they were, uh, there's video footage in the documentary as well, Who Killed the KLF, of the band, uh, the two of them selling kind of like the idea of the book and saying, we'll give you your money back if you don't get a number one, that kind mm-hmm. of stuff. Um, in, in three months, I think, was their promise. In three months. Yeah. yeah. And the entire, I read it again yesterday. The entire thing is, is, uh, is kind of pitched like here's day one and and then it takes you through the various steps in which um to uh get to that number one and uh while there's loads of things in it that aren't relevant anymore but there's still lots of things that are um the stuff that isn't relevant is like about studio and finances and mm. hiring a programmer and an engineer and all this kind of stuff still things you can do but some of the basic stuff um is really interesting so I'll is go it presented as a as a serious book like could could you pick this no. book up by accident and take it seriously or no it's not it once you open it and read it you're like these lads are having a laugh but they're okay. also very serious about it but i think that's kind of the klf in a nutshell as well yes they're, yeah, yeah they're very serious about be having a laugh or mm, like yeah. trying to do stuff or showing people that like it was so easy for them to have a number one that it was like, well, why don't we just tell everyone else how to do it? Yeah. Because we did it and it was really easy. So this is what they did. They offered a money back guarantee to anybody who would not score a number one hit single after meticulously following these steps. Uh, one of the steps included, you must be skint and on the dole. Anybody with a proper job or tied up with full-time education will not have the time to devote to see this through. Also, being on the dole gives you a clearer perspective on how much of society is run. If you are already a musician, stop playing your instrument. Even better, sell the junk. It will become clearer later on, but just take our word for it for the time being. 
sitting around tinkering with a part of studio or musical gear, either ancient or modern, just complicates and distracts you from the main objective. Even worse than being a musician is being a musician in a band. Real <laughs> bands never get to number one, unless they are puppets. So if you're in a band, get out now, quit. That said, it can be very helpful to have a partner, someone who you can bounce ideas off and vice versa. Any more than two of you and factions develop and you may as well be in politics. There's no place for the nostalgia of the four lads who shook the world or the last gang in town. It goes on to say then you, you need to go and study the charts of the day, basically uh, the top of the pops uh, on Sunday and uh, the, the charts on Sunday on the radio, the hits. Sure. And it talks about like stuff like financing and all that kind of stuff. But the key stuff is the golden rules of the songwriting. Right. Mm. Um, so firstly, these are the break, the, the top line kind of stuff. Firstly, it has to have a dance groove that will run all the way through the record and that the current generation will find irresistible. Secondly, it must be no longer than three minutes and 30 seconds. Just under three minutes and 20 seconds is preferable. Thirdly, it must consist of an intro, a verse, a chorus, a second verse, a second chorus, a breakdown section, Back into a double end chorus and outro. Fourthly, lyrics. You will need some, but not many. <laughs> Hold on to say, it is going to be a construction job fitting bits together. You will have to find the Frankenstein in, it, in you to make it work. Your magpie instincts must come to the fore. If you think this just sounds like a recipe for some horrific monster, be, re- be reassured by us. All music can only be the sum or total part of what has gone before. Every number one song ever written is only made up of bits from other songs. There is no lost chord, no changes untried, no extra notes to the scale or hidden beats to the bar. There is no point in searching for originality. In the past, most writers of songs spent months in their lonely rooms, strumming their guitars or bands in rehearsals, have grounded their way through endless riffs before arriving at the song that takes them to the very top. Of course, most of them would be mortally upset to be told, that all they were doing was leaving it to chance before they stumble across the tried and tested. They have to believe it is through this sojourn they arrive at the Grail, the great and original song that the world will un- be unable to resist. So it said, if there's, it talks about going on to say if you can you can try and take a cover, but the problem with taking a cover is that uh, you know you, it depends on uh, what the song is and which part it is. You can disguise and modify it, but then you're giving up some of your uh, royalties and stuff like that. So it says the best thing to do is to borrow liberally, but not directly. Uh, It talks about BPM specifically. In this day and age, no song with a BPM over 135 will ever have a chance of getting to number one. This is in 1988 now. The vast majority of regular club goers will not be able to dance to it and still look cool. The vast majority of indie bands, however large their cult following is... uh, who play what various music journalists often describe as perfect classic pop, will never see the inside of the top five. One for one reason alone, they perform all their songs above the 135 BPM ceiling. Their love, traumas and balls of confusion, of hate and bile, all rush by at some immeasurable blur of a BPM. Basically saying, appeal to the lowest common denominator and have a catchy chorus. The next thing you have to have is a chorus. The chorus is the bit in the song that you can't help but sing along with. Is the most important element in a hit single because it is the part that most people carry around with them in their head when there's no radio to be heard, no video on TV, and they are far from the dance floor. It's the part that nights you while daydreaming in the classroom or at work as you walk down the street to sign on. It's the part that finally convinces the punters to make that trip down to the record shop and buy it. So slip on the 12 inch of your dance compilation and sing along with the breakdown sections. Any old words will do. Just whatever comes out of your mouth. If you have difficulty forming a tune in your head and you feel a bit inhibited, flick through a copy of the Guinness Book of Hits or pick any top five record that takes your fancy and see if you can sing along the chorus with the track. 
Doctor Who, hey, Doctor Who, Doctor Who in the TARDIS, Doctor Who, hey, Doctor Who, Doctor Who, Doc, Doctor Who, Doctor Who, Doc, Doctor Who. Gibberish, of course, but every lad in the country under a certain age related instinctively to what it was about. The one slightly older needed a couple of pints inside him to clear away the mind debris left by the passing years before it made sense. As for girls in our course, we think they must have seen it as pure crap, a fact that must have limited uh, to zero our chances of staying at Top of the Pops for more than one week. So that's part of what they talk about. It is really worth an a, 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 a entire read. It is just kind of give up at the end because that's what the KLF were like. We're like, oh, we did it all now. Here's the book. Um, but there were some acts that actually did follow uh, their uh, entire uh, brief here and actually did it. The first one was a, a, a European, an Austrian dance band called Edelweiss. Now, this, I'm going to play a bit of this song, but I love this. Uh, yeah, let <laughs> let's just say that um, this is bad. This is a yeah, bad song. It's uh, but truly it's terrible, record, so. but I love it. You get the idea. You get the idea. What was happening there? They were following the rules as directly as they could with the original, um, kind of the ABBA thing, and 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 bringing together a very novelty thing of yodeling mm-hmm. and <laughs> a current pop hit, a big known, well known pop hit. So SOS from ABBA there, um, which read this song, um, reached number one in five different countries, including New Zealand, and went on to sell five million copies worldwide. Now, obviously, things are very different now. I don't think a record like that would do well, but this was at the time. But I think there's still some rules to be learned, some things we can learn from the manual that apply to modern days. I remember um, the most recent example of someone I heard who had followed um, the manual was the band The Claxons. And one of the bands said, I think it's Jamie Reynolds, I literally read that book and put it into practice. I took direct instruction from it. Get yourself a studio, get a groove going, sing some absolute nonsense over the top, put a break beat behind it, and you're away. That's what I did. That's genuinely it. I read it. I noted down the golden rules of pop and applied that to everything we did and what we're doing and made sure that we always applies. That way, we always come out with a sort of catchy hit number. You wonder why more people don't do it. This is it. It depends whether or not you want to be a pop band. We said we wanted to be a subversive pop band and for our structure, I'm following the goals and rules of uh, the KLF's manual every step of the way. 
So yeah. <laughs> I think it's just that is really an interesting thing and I think it's still some of that while some of it doesn't apply obviously but some of it does still I think uh, yeah. if you're looking to make a number one there's, there's things you have to do what was, what was the last like, denominator? big novelty song not, would you say god that's good a good question we haven't had a novelty we song for really a while we haven't really had one in a while haven't we not we've kind of gone away um does uh, does dance with me by uh, Monk, uh, Tones and I work Dance Monkey does that no that's not yeah that. maybe a true novelty record I think I think Dance Monkey is relatively novelty, is it? Or is it just that we have literally no, no artistic, like, we don't consider it to be art at all? Um, yeah. Maybe. Probably, um, maybe, like, the trend of the sea shanty stuff. When, uh, yeah, when people of, started releasing that. that. Kind of vibe. Mm, yeah, yeah. And then it became... Yeah, I mean, it's hard. Like, if you look at the charts right now, like, is there anything in there that would be considered, uh, like, even a Bob the Builder or something like that? You know, like, yeah, like a, a, yeah, a, ch- a children's song. <laughs> we we Baby Shark, one. but I think that was literally for children. I don't think that was ever supposed to be a yeah, chart no, it was thing. Just so that was just so catchy that it, it uh, continued. Great song. To, um, <laughs> breakthrough. <laughs> um, I mean, yeah, I mean, it's Kylie's Padam Padam kind of a novelty song, like it. I don't know. It's, it it follows hard. probably some of those golden rules, but like uh, it's incessantly annoying in lots of ways. But uh, I find, but uh, no, I think yeah, I think no, if I Padam Padam was written about Aperol spritz, it would be an yeah. object. Do you know what I mean? Like it, yeah. there, there there needs to be a kind of a commercial tie-in somehow, or or like a reference to another part of pop culture that's maybe a little bit kitsch. Yeah. Well, look at like I mean, Eiffel sixty five is blue was a kind of a novelty hit of its mm. day, and now it like last year, uh, David Guetta and Babe Rexa turned it, or this year turned it into yeah, wor- good, worst blue, thing in, a, a in the world pop hit. Yeah, so that's where we're at now these days. It's hard to predict. It's hard to predict. But listen, back to the KLF. What they did after that was uh, they well they changed their name to the KLF, and uh, people would ask them what it meant, and they always give different answers, but. Really, they they actually became a massive band uh, mm. in the intervening years. They released two albums, uh, Chill Out in 1990, which I could talk about later on, and The White Room in 1991, and a string of five top five singles. And they became the biggest selling act in the world for in 1991. So here is Last Train to tra- tra- Transcentral from the, uh, their, I guess from The White Room. Yeah, Last Train to Transcentral, just one of their big yeah. hits that they had. They also did things like uh, collaborated with uh, Tammy Wynette uh, on the song Justified and Ancient. And uh, yeah, a very strange record. Here we go. They're Tammy, stand by the jam. But if you 
They wrote like catchy stadium house music essentially like that's what it was trancy house music that had big pop melodies um everything was big and bombastic and it really worked at that time it was the music that like people uh, responded to so in 1991 that's around that time for the summer solstice in 1991 the klf entertained a selection of music industry figures journalists off the isle of jura uh, off the uh, uh, coast of Scotland uh, in an event known as the Rites of Moo. Now, the Isle of Jura is a place that we'll, we will revisit an uh, uh, event, but on this one, they basically uh, invited all these press journalists away for the weekend, and upon arrival, the guests were welcomed by uh, Bill Drummond in uh, full uh, character mode, decked out in a military garb, uh, acting as a passport control officer checking everyone's passport and stamping them with a pyramid blaster stamp um that evening a yellow ro- robes were handed out to the press journalists and they were told to wear them and they were marched down a muddy road to a beach where a film crew was waiting and bill drummond now wearing a white hooded robe and a fake rhino's horn uh, protruding from his forehead led the group in chants like low um kind of chants and uh, then there was a 40 foot wicker man that had been erected at the water's edge right at the summer solstice at 10.21. The wicker man was torched with the cameras recording everything. Um, and the four angels of Moo, which were four people in white dresses with flower headbands, uh, walked into the sea and joined the celebrants. The high priest uh, addresses the crowd as Bill Drummond in a tongue that no longer exists, at least not in this world. <laughs> as the ceremony reaches its climax at midnight, the longest day, the priest encourages the guests to direct their psychic energy towards the wicker man, chanting, burn, burn, burn. And it bursts into flames. By sacrificing the wicker idol, somehow the KLF had reversed the fall of mankind. This is what they were saying. <laughs> so not much happened uh, the rest of the weekend other than they had a massive party. Uh, everyone in the documentary, there was a tin of, of ecstasy being passed around. A quality street tin. Qu- quality street tin of uh, ecstasy. Um, so they had a, had a rave on the beach and had an arena-sized sound system, strobe lights and everything, blazing till dawn. So... Instead, the other thing that they did was they uh, they granted instead of granting interviews, they uh, turned the tables and had journalists on stage giving a concert, and so they could have the opportunity to see what it feels like from the other side. Now, the resulting um, you can actually watch the uh, uh, there's a thirty minute short film available online, and it's narrated by none other than, than Martin Sheen, which is just bizarre. Uh, it's called The Rights of Moo. It's from 1991. <laughs> That's the uh, campus thing they're... they've ever done is get Martin Sheen yeah. to narrate that. Yeah, he just he, I was watching it there yesterday and i was like this is mad i can see him being into them yeah that was one thing they weren't great at they weren't great they were really interested in film but they were never great at it and creating they thought they would make this film documentary called the white room and uh, they traveled around america and brought cameras with them but like and they hadn't spent loads of money on it but they didn't have a story so they just it just became this weird collection of um kind of interesting imagery more than anything else shots of them driving around yeah, them driving around in the famous uh, Ford car as well. So after this time, they had become this notorious multi-selling band, uh, biggest pop singles band of the year. So we come to the Brit Awards. So um, I'm so the excited KLF to talk about in 1991. 
Yeah. They were invited in 1991 to perform uh, and uh, they suggested in 1991 that they were, their suggestions included uh, sacrificing live elephants and stuff on stage, that the invitation was cancelled. Then the following year, they're approached um, to do it again uh, because they were up for an award. I think it was Best New Artist. Best Band. uh, At the Brits. Best new band at the Brits. So um, somehow they persuaded the organizers to let them perform with a band called Extreme Noise Terror, who are basically a heavy metal band and a trash metal band. And so they performed a version of 3AM Eternal on stage that night. But before that, they had all these dastardly plans that they wanted to do. Um, following on from the uh, sacrificing live animals, they decided they would cut up a dead sheep or kill a dead sheep live on stage. Um, in front of the audience and throw its blood all over the front rows. Which they didn't um, do. They didn't do, but he, Bill Drummond says the original idea was that two thirds of the way through the song, this altar would appear with the sheep on and it would come on and, and we'd bought the meat cleavers, the knives, the ca- tablecloth, got everything. But on the morning of the show, um, he actually did drive to an abattoir in Northampton and bought a whole dead sheep and eight gallons of blood. But uh, the band that they were playing with, the Extreme Noise Terror, uh, were actually vegetarians, hardcore vegetarians at the time. And they said, we're not doing this if you do that. BBC lawyers were obviously not very happy about this either. So uh, Brits was on the BBC then. Um, so instead, they settled on performing 3AM Eternal in this thrash metal uh, noise uh, uh, way. And then uh, Bill Drummond fired blanks from a machine gun over the audience's heads. So uh, here's a bit of how that sounds. I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me, because you didn't use LinkedIn Jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates, like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com people today. Burroughs Furniture is built for the way you live. From ensuring easy assembly and disassembly to honoring highly requested new colors for their award-winning seating, they always have their customers in mind. Their modular seating is made out of durable materials to last and grow with you. And with Burrow, you always get fast, free shipping. Get up to 60% off during Burrow's Memorial Day sale at burrow.com slash ACAST. That's burrow.com slash ACAST. Burrow.com slash ACAST. 
Yeah, so if you hear, listen closely there, you can kind of hear um, the KLF or Bill Drummond firing blanks from a machine gun over the heads of the audience. Um, why did they do this? I mean, this is what they were like. They didn't do things the easy way. They didn't want to be courted by the music industry. They, The good thing about what the KLF did, as the documentary makes clear, is that they were in charge of their own masters and they were in charge of their own production. They didn't sign to a label. They released all these things themselves. They licensed music. and But all of the records and stuff that they bought and uh, processed and uh, gotten done on a, a record plant went to their uh, studio and um i think that is one of the reasons why then when the the same uh brit awards they were awarded the best british band uh, jointly with simply red <laughs> simply red yeah i mean what, a, what what an insult to a band like that really. can you see but, in my notes uh, <laughs> i can't see it now what's it say it I'll says simply seen. red lol in like all lol. caps I was, yeah. I was taking these while I was watching it um that that I I laughed the most at that part um yeah. I, th- I think it's Bill says to someone at some point in the document or uh, at this point in the documentary he's like yeah the British music industry were letting us know that we were as good as simply red and, yeah, yeah, exactly. And right. I, I, I love that height, so much. The height of their uh, creative uh, career, you know. Yeah, as, as but what, what I, go. what I loved about that, about that section as well is it. I mean, it, sh- it showed a clip of the beginning of the Brit Awards, which at this time began with a, an announcer saying, um, "Ladies and gentlemen, the British music industry presents the the Brit Awards." So it's yeah, yeah. It, it is the British music industry. It's not. It, it's it, it's the perfect place for them to literally like take up arms and fire at it um it it makes complete sense for them to have done that and i i i think that performance is like it's genuinely one of my favorite things i've ever seen like i love the brit awards i love the chaos of the brit awards but like the fact that i'd never seen it before i was like I was so giddy watching it. I thought it was incredible. I thought it was amazing. Yeah, and it's genuine. Like, apparently the, the reaction in the audience was was one of, like, there was people that were, like, trying to leave the audience because they thought that, like, he, obviously, he has a has a machine gun mm. in his hand and he's kind mm. of stopped real on the gun. stage. And he looks, he looks quite menacing. And he's, he is, he, he is an imposing figure. And then he starts firing these blanks into the audience. And, you know, I'm sure that was a bit, there were people like, what the fuck? Yeah. But here? then as you can hear um, in the clip, the kind of very polite British applause at the end yeah, when they, when they yeah. finish and they go off stage and the curtain comes down. It's very, very funny. And I think there's an element of this band and we'll get it a little bit later on um, uh, because I have some reaction to something that they did in this country as well. Um, and I think, they just people just were like didn't have time for them and they didn't really have time for the industry either so when they won this award with joint, simply red jointly with simply red simply red at that time was basically taking uh old r&b songs uh and making them his own and not telling i think at the time probably people thought he was like writing those songs a little bit as well there was some elements yeah. of maybe like you know you're you're using um black musicians music from the past and uh, make pass them off as your own as this like northern uh english uh, white guy yeah um so that and was, you're also yeah, that was so a, annoying just like <laughs> you're i have such annoying. a visceral reaction to simply red songs like i really i like some really of them i do them. i really oh, do God, but, no. um not some of them are, yeah i mean i think he does some he does some like they're cheesy but i like some of them i always well. hate him because uh, he he was really big when i when obviously. i was a kid like he'd be on the radio a lot when I was a kid and on like the music stations when I was a kid. And even Maybe then... Maybe that's how you know you've grown up. You're like, hmm, Simply Red. Actually, thanks. No, no. <laughs> Consider me a child forever then. No, I'll always hate okay. that man. I don't know what it okay. is. 
Okay, so when they won that award with Simply Red, they had already left, so they sent uh, their pal who was uh, dressed in motorcycle messenger gear up to pick it up. And they wouldn't actually let him in, so he just ran on stage and grabbed it. And then there was a bit of uh, uh, confusion, and then uh, he was actually uh, tackled to the ground as well. <laughs> uh, but after at the after party, the band actually did leave the carcass of a dead sheep outside the after party menu with a sign that said, I died for you, bon appetit. And um, EWE, then they course, buried their Brit Award. I died for you. Mm-hmm. They they buried their Brit Award statuette uh, in a field near Stonehenge, which was later recovered. And then apparently they went back again and uh, buried it again. Buried it again. <laughs> Question mark over that because they, yeah. they one, one of them says yeah. in the documentary, "Oh, there's a big archaeological gate uh, dig there." And uh, we were hoping it would it would show up, but it didn't. I've I've my doubts as to whether or not they went back and buried it again. Yeah. But um, yeah, but it's very funny. You know, they've it's such but- a sense of like of aesthetics, like like the the idea of them going to Stonehenge and like it really ties in with that um with that music industry, that music journalist sort of party that they had that was very yeah. pagan and like they. They had such a strange sense of aesthetics and I just love them, the idea of them going up to Stonehenge and sneaking past the guards, which they had to do and they had to be really quiet and they dug like this, like quite small hole <laughs> to, yeah, to bury yeah. it. And yeah, it's so funny. But the end of that Brit's performance, there's an announcement over the uh, system that you can't quite hear on that recording there, but it does... Ladies and gentlemen, the KLF have now left the music business. And mm-hmm. that was the officially the end of their career, really, because that same year, very suddenly and very publicly, they retired and they deleted their entire back catalogue. What that meant is they no longer sold it. And obviously, this is a time when it was only physical uh, copies of, of music that were available and they stopped selling it. And... That is covered in the documentary a little bit. <laughs> one of their, one of their, uh, I don't know what he is exactly. Is he or their like label manager or accountant or something like that? And he's just like the wizard guy. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Oh, not not John Moore. No, but there's there's a guy that's like he's clearly involved. But uh, oh, him. Like, that's yeah, that's what they decided to do. I mean, what yeah. could we say? But there's parts of it there. They talk about how things were getting out of hand. Uh, Drummond had been like conceiving new ways of like uh of sh- maybe not shocking people but like of, of making statements and one of them was like included cutting his own hand off and he was like i think they got to the point where they were starting to do these make these like uh trying to hang a, a cow carcass up on a pylon and they were like why are we doing this mm. nobody cares the hand thing so, i think was an idea they wanted to do with the brits he wanted to chop yeah, his hand yeah, off and throw right, it yeah, into yeah. the throw it into the audience of the brits yeah here have, have us literally yeah yeah um, there was so there was a, a connection made with the with the red hand of ulster in the documentary that i don't think quite landed for yeah, me that feels tenuous to me it did I, feel a bit yeah. tenuous to me I, I i think it was more of a like a nihilistic um discordianism thing which we'll probably talk a bit more about later in terms of their philosophy but like I think it was much more to do with that than making any kind of like political statement yeah well their music was officially deleted at that point in 1992 and wasn't available again officially until 2013 when it appeared back on iTunes before that there's loads of other things that happened they became the K Foundation Uh, the K Foundation was the next thing they did officially they split as the KLF but they continued working together under the name the K Foundation and they released one limited edition single called K Sarah Sarah. 
and awarded a 40,000 uh, Foundation Art Award for the worst artist of the year to the artist Rachel White Reed, White Reds. Uh, yeah, so that year, uh, the Turner Prize was awarded to an artist called uh, Rachel Whitehead, White Red. And um, in so in contrast to this, the KLF awarded her 40,000 um, pounds for the K Foundation Award for the worst artist of the year. And one of the things about this was that, you know, they were trying to make points about, uh, you know, uh, art and money and uh, how it's valued and and how people are uh, perceived. So what they actually did was they nailed one million pounds and 50 uh, uh, quid notes uh, to a large frame board. Uh, this is our artwork called Nailed to the Wall. Um and what they did was they said if she didn't turn up and accept Sorry, the they, award, they chained it to the gates of the Turner Institute. So they chained it to the gates and they gave Rachel a, a time limit and said, if you don't come and uh, claim your prize, then we'll burn it. And she she didn't want to accept this prize. Um, you know, she just won she just won the Turner. I think she was the first woman ever to to win the Turner. And um she didn't want to do it, but there's obviously, um, she she said, there's a clip of her in the documentary where she says that she felt blackmailed into coming and collecting it because it would be burnt otherwise. So she came and collected it after the deadline, but they but they kept it there for her. She came and collected it and then immediately gave it away afterwards. It's not clear who she gave it away to. Um, she but said she was, would give it as grants to needy artists, so I don't know. Sure, yeah, happened. yeah. And I think yeah, I, I think that's what she did. She didn't want it for herself because it's obviously, it's, it's, not, a, it's not a prize. It's her being used as part of someone else's yeah. art, art installation. So she gave it away anyway, but... Um, uh, there was there was a few people in the documentary saying like I wish they'd burnt it I wish they'd burnt it which will come up later um but we'll maybe maybe we'll we'll get onto that now but I think the again that sense of aesthetics like I I feel like once they became the K Foundation for me like I'm really interested in them as musical artists but once they became the K Foundation I feel like they really became artists and provocateurs and once they started doing things like if like if you take the book for example it's like oh here's here's the recipe for a number one right they they understood and they knew exactly Mm. what it was that they were doing at all times and it's at this point in their careers together that they step out of what they understand and they lean more into like whatever their artistic urges are and those urges are to kind of like create chaos um and to I don't know if they consider themselves to be that like political I, I, I don't think yeah. them themselves when they're sitting around talking about their art consider themselves to be overtly political or you know provocateurs or anything like that but you know they obviously are um so yeah maybe will we talk about the million quid yeah, I mean, like we said, there burning has been something. Burning things has been something that uh, is a theme in the KLF's uh, journey so far, and of course, the biggest one, and the thing that they are most notorious for is the K Foundation burn a million quid. That was when, on twenty third of August, nineteen ninety four, in a boathouse in the Scottish island of Jura, Bill Drummond and Jimmy Cauty incinerated one thousand uh, pounds in cash. 
that's what they did. They set fire to a million pounds in cash on the, and they filmed it. They brought their friend Gimpo, who was their kind of videographer, and a guy called Jim a Reed. A freelance journalist as well, I think. Freelance journalist Jim Reed, uh, to an abandoned boathouse in Jura on 23rd of August, 1994, and burnt it. Now, you know, you, they then made a film out of this, but I think the big thing, I mean, this was such a, like, I remember this so vividly from, when I heard about it, because I was like, wow, they're the, and because that's all that the KLF became after this. They became um, a band who had burnt a million quid. And mm-hmm. that was the whole story. Um, and Jim Reed wrote an article for GQ called Money to Burn. Uh, he says he admits to feeling guilty at first, and then boredom while watching the money burn. Uh, Drummond and Cotty then uh, took the resulting film that they made and started showing it around um, the UK, like and and two various different reactions and and like people were angry with them, didn't believe that they'd done it, thought it was fake money, um. But the big question really became why they did it, and they never had a good answer for it, and I no. think they don't really know why they did it themselves. I mean, there has been suggestions that. If you look into it, that like, yeah, they clearly had more money than uh, this single million quid that, yeah, they did burn it. If that doesn't seem to be in dispute, but um, they certainly had other money in the mm. in a bank account somewhere that they have profited of. And uh, so it, it became this like massively divisive thing that they did. Why did these two men, these two men who made loads of money from pop music, take the money and burn it for a million quid what i think and is so interesting about the film they made is like to be clear that the, the film is just the money burning it lasts around an hour and it's just the money burning it's not narrated it's not it's not even shot with them like walking up to the walking up to the house deciding to do it like you know fe- feeling um feeling strange about it talking about it narrating it it's just an hour of of them burning a million quid and you know of as as you said, they they toured around the UK and and they showed it in Ireland as well. As we'll talk about it, in, I'll talk about it in a minute. But I found the reactions to that so 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 interesting. I'm really curious as to how you feel about it because for me, I felt um, I felt a really initial sort of visceral like reaction to it, where I I, I just had this image of like if I was there just like shoving my hand into the embers and trying to save some of that money. And, and I think that, I think this is the single greatest artistic um, endeavor that they've embarked upon. Like the reaction to it was absolutely astounding. There were some people who felt the way I do that it was, that it was art and um, that it made, it made a very um, real point about like what what is a million pounds and who decides what you get to do with it and you know like if why why don't we have a problem when people waste a million pounds like because the big question is why yeah. why didn't you give it to charity right and and the the answer to that is there's plenty of people there's plenty of million pounds in the world that aren't being given to charity they're being spent on boats and you know on art um Art, like art, art pieces and uh, cars and, and kind drugs, of keeping and hoarding money yeah. and all that kind of yeah. stuff. Yeah, no like there's there's a, there's, there's a million pound that's just gone up people's noses, and and nobody cares about that. You know, people spend on drugs and boats and and, and whatever it is, and nobody seems to have a problem with um 
with that and how that is, you know, it's it's the same thing as burning it, you know, and, and I think that that they were they they the round number of a million, which at the time it it is still now an awful lot of money, but at the time it was an awful lot more money than it is now. Um it's a nice round number, it's it's incredibly provocative, um and it doesn't it doesn't evoke the same feeling in everybody. And I think that I think that art is kind of supposed to do that. So I went through like a range of emotions while while watching that. And I, I just can't remember the last time I saw some kind of art art that wasn't music that kind of made me feel that way. Um, yeah, I think I think it's incredible. But what's what's your what's your thought on it? Because you were aware of it like long before I was. Yeah, so. well, I think when I first heard of it, it was something I was like, can't but be- it was more the incredulity of it. It's like, I can't yeah. believe these people have done this and mm. they couldn't have done it. Um, and as time gone on and revisiting now, I'm like, okay, they really must have done it. Mm. Um, but I think I really like the gray area that exists from them when you when they're talking about it. Mm. Uh, famously, they appeared on The Late Late with Gay Byrne and they discuss a lot of those topics and like people are like, why didn't you give it a charity? Yeah. Why didn't you do it this? Uh, your man from Joe from Def Leppard is on as well. Um, oh, and he, does he not said, come wouldn't, you, wouldn't well. you set up a studio for kids and all this kind of for stuff? For unemployed and kids, he said. And I was like, what? <laughs> who are these unemployed kids who you're trying to get in the studio? Like, Yeah. But, he like I think and and Bill Drummond says at one point like this is a construct this is paper this mm. is like it's like they're making a point about you know we know that like money is a social construct and now and like you know like it's more obvious to think about music or to think about money as this um object that we have all created and bought into and mm. therefore to burn it I think it's less visceral now mm. because it feels like, well, this is physical money that was burnt. We know that people waste money all the time. We know people make million uh, quid in a day sometimes. Mm. Um, and I think the ant, what they're quite trying to pose is more, way more interesting. Yeah. Um, and it is long lasting because it's not, it's not something that has a simple answer. Well, Bill, um, Bill Drummond makes a really interesting kind of counter argument that the late late audience are not interested in hearing, um, which is that burning a million quid doesn't mean, you know, on, on the on the on the charity argument doesn't mean that there's any fewer loaves of bread in the world. And I think that that's a really like, you know, even the idea of charity is a capitalistic construct, right? The The, yeah. the, the idea that we will all help one another that people within a state will donate to charity so that governments don't need to intervene and help out. And I think there was something about watching them on the late, late, I don't know. Are, are you going to play a clip? Yeah. The late, I, late? I mean, it is yeah. 21 minutes long, so I, I, I we'll, haven't picked out particular we'll, clips. We'll play, a, play a, a, bit of it. a little snippet, but I mean the, the whole, I, well, first of all, I think Bill Drummond says one of the most profound things about it. And I think he probably should have even left it at this, which was we knew we wanted the money, but we wanted to burn it more. And I think that that's that's an incredible statement. Um, but the the whole segment and I actually think Gay Byrne does a really good job in this. Um, he's he's clearly offended by this having happened, yeah. but he's also he's really trying to get answers and. So the whole the whole segment is them defending what they've done, right? And I think when you get two people who have done something like this and you put them in a situation where they can discuss it, it 
it might yield really good results. But because this was all happening in the immediate aftermath, that late, late audience is going to be made up of people who'll never see a million quid in their lives. A, a, a lot of them will yeah. be struggling financially, will have, you know, family members who need, you know, hip replacements and operations. That that comes up a lot. Like, what if what if your children need an operation 10 years down the line and so on? Um, but getting the getting two artists like this who, by their own admission, you know, don't know why they did it to sit in a room and defend why they did it is is relatively fruitless um, at the time. But looking back at it now, and I think like I think socially things have kind of moved more towards a a distrust and a, a and, you know, a, a kind of qu- questioning around what what the value of money is. I think it's a really interesting text to look at that late, late um yeah, that late late interview. It's I think, yeah, it's incredible. I think we as a modern society and people in a modern society now have the language in which to interrogate that much more. It yeah. seems like I think that in in if that interview was happening now, there'd be much more nuance. It wouldn't be just like these men are ridiculous, or if somebody rings in is like. I'm a psychiatrist and I know there's going to be loads of uh, work for me looking at these lads kind of thing. And then people who are just like, uh, just can't understand. There's people in the audience in fairness who are like, I think it's great. I think it's great that they did it. I think it's an artistic statement. Um, And then there's a fashion uh, student from NCAD who's like, they're just looking for attention. Yeah, yeah, yeah. They're just looking for attention. Yeah. Yeah. But what what I find amazing about it is that, right, so there's there's people talking about the the artistic value of the work, you know, whether or not it is an artistic statement. The, The two lads don't ever really, you know, confirm or deny that. But there's plenty of people in the world who spend a million quid on a music video or yeah. or on a on a film that is, you know, uh, pro- propaganda for the military thing, or something though, like it? it's it's like it's fine to spend a million quid on materials with which to build art or with which to make art. But it's not OK to, quote unquote, spend that million quid by burning it and creating an art piece that, to be honest, is more provocative, is more emotionally resonant than, you know, almost anything I've seen. Like, I think I think it's genuinely amazing. And for them to be the first ones to do it is obviously a very important thing. But like, why why are we okay with them spending so much money on their music videos, for example? As as you were saying earlier, they put all all their money. money, Why is that okay? And, and, and it's not okay for them the, to burn in it. In the interviews, you know? like there's m- you, anything would have been better than this. Yeah, and and I f- I find that so interesting. Why? Why is why why is there a moral value assigned to buying things when there's no moral uh, or to giving money away to other people when there's no moral value assigned to deciding that what you want to do is get rid of this money and get rid of the hold that it has on you in your life, like. I think it's this this project, this this art project, the burning. I don't know if it actually has a name. Um, the K the K Foundation burn a million quid. That's the film. So that's sure, kind of yeah. I think called, that yeah. that that has more to say than you know almost any other anti capitalistic um, art piece I've seen. I think it has a lot more to say than like I don't know Banksy or something. Do you know what I mean? And 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 it's yeah. because of the risk involved in it and. Like when I was watching the the clips of them touring the film and, you know, like to remind people, people are coming in to watch an hour long film of a million quid being burnt and they probably paid in as well. Um, to me, that feels that feels like a 
like a genuinely dangerous thing to do is to sit in a room while you show people yeah. that you've done that. Um, I think it's incredibly provocative and interesting. And yeah, I love it. I think it's the best thing they've done. It's amazing. Yeah. I, ho- I hope they never talk about it again. Um, yeah. yeah. I mean, I wonder if they will. Um, let's play a bit of the some of the audio and I'll dig out some of the best uh, podcasts. We made a lot because our, like, our records were hits all over the world and we were in control of our own situation as well. So, But we wanted to stop when we stopped. I mean, there's a lot of reasons for wanting to stop, but at least we stopped before our records were uh, useless records. Most people can only make good records for a short period of time. Well, that's no particular reason to give up. I mean, if we all gave up no. just because we're not the best. Um, I understand you. I understand you've been doing this for thirty-three years, and I was like, how can he? You know, but obviously you're still the best at what you do. But uh, in pop music, you know, you know, you've been doing the show. Sure, for, sure. You've seen them come seen and go. Yeah. Seen them go. Apart from Cliff, I suppose. And, yeah. With the exception. And of we that. thought, you know, it's better to get out while you're while you're ahead. So you went and took this million pounds and you started burning it. What, and you've been asked it a million times, I know. What about all the people who want hip replacement operations and old people and young people and handicapped yeah. people and kidney well, you know, obviously, obviously we thought about that, uh, you know, and we're not a charitable organisation. We thought that uh, you know, there's plenty of people who want to give money to charity. We wanted to do something that we found more interesting with the money. More interesting. Yeah, more interesting than giving it away to charity. Us burning that money doesn't mean there's any less loaves of bread in the world, any less apples, any less anything. The only thing that's less is a pile of paper. No, there could have been a little more. There, there, okay. It's not less, but there could have been a little more. More what? Another More lo- bread, more apples, whatever. No. Does that, we didn't burn any loaves of bread. No, but we you didn't burn any apples. But you could have bought loaves of bread no, but for those, people who those, needed those, But those loaves of bread would still have existed. Do you know what I mean? There's actually nothing, there's nothing less in the world other than a, a pile of paper. You're, you're I used to talk to my dad like that when I was 16. Well, I'm still talking to my dad like that and I'm 42. <laughs> did, did you and Rick know the music of, of, of Bill and Jim? Their blue shirt, yeah, hi. Yeah, I think it's disgusting that two people should be allowed to do such a thing with so much poor in this country and in the foreign countries, it's an absolute well, there are, disgrace. There, there, their argument is, it's their money. They can do what they like with it. Yes, I, I can So yeah, look, that's a bit of the uh, the interview on the Lele. Very well worth a watch. That was uh, mm. Joe that Elliott. Message. Joe Elliott, Joe of course. Elliott. Yeah. He's been, throughout my life, on TV. Uh, <laughs> uh, giving a serious side eye in that clip to uh, Bill Drummond. There. It, it, it's uh, a clip, like it is, what did you say, 20 odd minutes, but... It is well worth yeah. watching. Um, and just to say, there's people that are going to be listening to this who think that this is, who completely disagree with what they've done, don't think it's an artistic statement, think that they should have given the money to charity and, and so on. And um, I don't think either of us are saying we think it's right or wrong, but, you know, we just appreciate yeah, it. But, yeah. you know, that's uh, it's uh, important to recognize that there's a spectrum of of um, responses to this, all of which are... Yeah correct and valid you know if if you're angry about it that's i completely understand why people are angry about it because it was my yeah. first reaction to it as well but uh, i mean is, in incredible. terms of the late late lords up there with frank mccourt and jerry hannon in 1999 for mm. me like these are two amazing clips that are worth that should be uh secured in a vault and never burnt in a digital vault but just like yeah. they're such brilliant uh examples of our lives 
uh, on t- through TV and, mm. and how we interact and especially the like you can hear the jeers of people in the audience there who don't understand yeah. and I think it's so so interesting and it's so funny because they, I was watching this clip and I was thinking about what it tells us about Ireland at the time and I was wondering if this happened today would the reaction to it be any different and I don't know that it would I don't know like I I feel like we'd, well, st- we'd still be angry right People would be talking to Joe about this, all right, for sure. Yeah, Joe yeah. And maybe if, if we didn't have stuff. Gay there to kind of provide a, a little bit of like, he's he's not, he, I wouldn't say he's a moderate on this topic. Like he is, he's clearly against it having happened, but there's something in him that has like an appreciation of what they're trying to say. But but the two yeah. lads, they they struggle to explain it. Um, they They don't, like they don't get a lot of, cheers and claps for things that they say that I think are actually like very powerful um, they get like a f- the few people in the audience that support them will will, will will clap for them and so on but they're they're not very good at defending it or explaining why they did it um, but of course they, they don't have to be like they don't they they shouldn't have to be you know they're artists the statement is in in itself what they want to say like they did it because they wanted to say something about that and that was their way of expressing it and they're not great at expressing why although i do think the loaves of bread thing is is very powerful and of course the we wanted the money but we wanted to burn it more i think is is amazing absolutely i think it's still and i think they say it in that piece as well like it's with us for our entire lives it's never going to go away mm-hmm. and it is it is and, it, and while they have got, they have gone away and come back a number of times in in various ways uh, after the burning of a million quid um they worked again in 1997 with a campaign called fuck the millennium which was a song by officially they were called 2k um, and essentially they did a 23 minute live performance satirizing the pop comeback um, in which they appeared as gray haired pensioners and wheeled around the stage in electric wheelchairs and kind of just talking like kind of trying to represent um, yeah kind of satirize that kind of stuff here is uh, an MTV news report from 1997 which makes clear a lot of what they've been up to after the boring of a million quid Strange things have been happening in London. In fact, one of the weirdest events in musical history occurred last Wednesday when Jimmy Corti and Bill Drummond, both former members of chart-topping band the KLF and famous for burning one million pounds, formed a new group for 23 minutes and then split up. A clever criticism of today's bands? An ingenious artistic statement? Or just a load of old hype? MTV's Eddie Temple Morris went along to find out what on earth's been going on. A brief history of Bill Drummond and Jimmy Corti, alias KLF, the greatest rave band in the world ever. January 1987, they formed Justified Ancients of Moo Moo. They didn't rock, they raved. In 1988, they changed their name to the Time Lords and their rave classic, Doctoring the TARDIS, topped the charts around Europe. 89 and through the early 90s, now operating as the KLF, as the Copyright Liberation Front, they had a string of worldwide hits with 3AM Eternal, What Time Is Love, and Justified and Ancient with country star Tammy Wynette. Then when they won Brit Award for Best Band in 92, they hijacked the ceremony with machine guns and threatened to cover the audience in sheep's blood before the audience heard this voice. Ladies and gentlemen, the KLF have now left the music business. So that's pop sorted, 
art next, and they formed the K Foundation, gave a £40,000 prize for the worst piece of art in the UK to the same woman who won the Turner Prize for the best piece of art at £20,000. She didn't want it, but the K Foundation said if she didn't take it, they'd burn the £40,000. Now comes the really mad bit. They took a million pounds in cash they'd hoarded from their pop days, took it to a small island off Scotland and burnt it. What next, you may ask? Well, with the year 2000 coming up, you could rely on these guys to do something different. Shrouded in secrecy since it was announced, this week they held a 23-minute performance under the name of 2K, the year 2000, if you will. They filled the Barbican Hall in London with fans and music business alike, all gagging to know what these two were going to pull off this time. In true KLF fashion, even their own spokesman didn't know what Drummond and Corty would do on the night, and this is minutes before they're due to go on stage. The good part about working with Bill and Jimmy, whether they're called the KLF, the K Foundation, uh, or 2K is that they never quite let us in on what's going on. Familiar clues to the KLF roots included those famous head horns. Oh, and that 23-minute version of What Time Is Love. The performance included real lifeboat men and the actual Liverpool dockers who've been fighting the British government since they lost their jobs years ago. With the 23 minutes up and the curtain about to fall, reaction in the crowd was good. Words like provocative and brilliant were bouncing around the hall, and another chapter in the history of the justified ancients of Moo Moo was closing. The very next morning, staff arriving at the Festival Theatre on the River Thames, one of the most famous landmarks in London, were horrified to see this painted in huge letters on their beloved structure. Less the KLF have left the building, more the KLF have left something on the building. <laughs> what the KLF had left on the building was a sign that said 1997, what the fuck is going on, uh, 10 years on from their uh, debut album. Which you don't get news reports like that on. anymore. That's no, great stuff. So. Um, Eddie Temple Morris and MTV. There you wow. go. Uh, that kind of gives you a, a, a brief history and what they were up to uh, uh, throughout their career. And then afterwards. There was another um, art piece that they did where they, I can't remember what the exact amount was, but they... They glued or nailed, say, for example, like 25 grand to a board and they sold it yeah. for 12 grand. They sold it for half of what the money on the board was worth. And I think they made like yeah. two or three of those kind of little art pieces, which I also think is very funny. That was nailed to the wall. The uh, So they had a reserve price of half a million, uh, but they put million on. Oh, that um, was it. Yeah, yeah, yeah. It's brilliant. Yeah. <laughs> So, yeah, that was another thing they did. So, I mean, they've never really gone away. And one of the reasons why um, I chose this is because they only they came up like a couple of weeks ago. Mm. Um, so there was a resident advisor article that said uh, the British band KLF have recreated their album 1987. What the fuck is going on? And donated the only copy to the British Library. The record can be streamed in the Library Sound Gallery until August 30th. Uh, it was obviously done now. After which you'll be able to hear in the British Library reading rooms. The original record was released in 1987 by the Justified Ancients of Moo Moo and included obviously the ABBA Dancing Queen. The recreated version is credited not to the KLF but to the Ice Cream Van. <laughs> uh, that's Ice Cream with a K and uh, the British Library released a statement saying in part today the British Library announced it has acquired the Acetate a unique disc containing a reconstructed version of 1987 what the fuck is going on with the Justified Ancients of Moo Moo later on it's KLF and also finding KLF communication master tapes. 
There followed this statement from the ice cream van. As a lifetime card carrying and founding member of the KLF reenactment society, I felt it was my duty to not only reenact the Justified Ancients of Moo Moo's album from 1987, uh, but to present it in a world in a way far superior than the original version. That said, I'm very aware that even if they are not aware that I am aware that my aging ice cream men have pirated a copy of my reenactment and have had that acetate cut of it and have donated their pirated copy to the British Museum for those that visit such places. Yours forever, the ice cream van. That was only like in August. So they have so done is that is that still in the reading room now? Yeah, it says it's there now. Oh, cool. Go I'm going to be in London in December. In Maybe I'll go see it. Go and listen to it. Yeah, I think I will. <laughs> uh, they have appeared, like appeared. Uh, I think 2017 was another one. Uh, they uh, did um, uh, had a novel called a trilogy. They had a three day festival, which is shown in the documentary. Welcome to the Dark Ages. And they have also confirmed that uh, uh, their work is an ongoing project and they've gone off and done individual stuff as well. In 2014, I actually spent an afternoon with Bill Drummond in Marsh's Library in Dublin um, when he came over to do an event for Young Hearts Run Free. Shout out to Siobhan Kane for that. Um, her cool uh, series of events that happened. So she invited him over to give a performance uh, lecture he, uh, which was called How to Sell Your Soul to the Devil. To be honest, I think he just kind of uh, very, we, we all hung out in Marshall's Library that day. You know, Marshall's Library is cool, old, old, old library. And he just kind of talked to the audience about what he'd done. And mm. uh, I don't remember too much specifics about it, but just like being kind of like, wow, this is Bill Drummond, the man from the KLF. That's so cool. But the other thing I remember about him that day is that he was really into knitting. <laughs> knitting was his big thing and so he took people on a knitting to knitting walk oh. earlier that morning and so there's pictures of him uh walking around uh dublin with a group uh, w- uh and they all have knitting things it's really weird oh i wish <laughs> so i'd known the, i wish i'd yeah, known them yeah. then i could have gone knitting 2014 so he's an he's remained an interesting person and uh they remain compelling people to talk about and they do appear every now and again and do things and um it is really interesting that they're that's why i was like god there they are again mm. august 2023 doing stuff with the british library is like they never go away they're always around and it's yeah. an ongoing project and i mentioned and then um the chill out album actually and uh i wanted to give a special uh, moments to that because it was one of the first uh, ambient albums that I ever heard. It was came out in 1990, an ambient style concept album featuring uh, samples portraying uh, a mythical nighttime journey throughout uh, the US from the Gulf Coast states, uh, beginning in Texas and ending in Louisiana. There's like sheep noises or sheep's on the sheep on the cover. It was uh, conceived as this continuous piece of music with. Uh, ambient music from the KLF some of the kind of uh, some of their famous melodies are in there as well but also has songs from Elvis Presley Fleetwood Mac Van Halen 808 State it's really beautiful it's really beautiful record it is you know it is really 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 interesting Harry said he he read a he can't remember if if he read it in a review or if somebody said it but somebody described it as a music dreaming about itself um, which yeah. I thought was really a really beautiful way to describe it, and that's what it does sound like. It's very kind of it's little snippets and very dreamlike and beautiful. Yeah, it's really nice. For sure, it's really nice. Here's a bit of Baltimore to Fair Play from that album.
So the KLF were had uh, regular collaborators and people that they were involved, in, like the Orb, who did a lot of this kind of stuff. So I think this was one of those things where they did something that just sounded uh, completely different to anything else they'd done. And it's one of their best records, 5th February 1990. Certainly, um, going back and revisiting now, you hear a lot of very bombastic... They're trying to almost like keep it ambient, but they can't help but like bring some of that bombast in. Mm. Uh, but it for for me for an ambient album that I, one of the first albums I heard. I remember my pal had it and I gave and gave it to me on. I think I borrowed a copy of it on a CD, uh, and I have it still somewhere. Um, but that is really 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 lovely. All of this music and all of their albums pretty much uh, reappeared or appeared on Spotify for the first time in 2021 under slightly different names. That's on an album called Come Down Dawn, which is essentially. Uh, the chill out album and then solid state logic one and two are there as well also uh some of their albums uh so the the white room is there as well and it always confused me for anyone else who ever thought about this i never really was sure like there's versions of uh 3am eternal and stuff like that that say like live at the ssl the ssl is just a sort of solid state logic it's just their studio so it was never a live version at all it was just like this weird thing that they did um I would, another like um it'll add end to all this is that uh, the KLF were an influence on a very surprising band. Surprising band. Mm, I don't know. You can actually there's are is some similarities in in their bombast uh, for sure. Let's say a German band, a German techno band called oh, Scooter. Oh, okay. I was like, Crawford? They're, they're so, around before them. Yeah, yeah. So the singer H.P. Baxter of Scooter says, uh, Hearing the KLF for the first time was a decisive turning point in my life. I remember it like it was yesterday. A local radio station in Hanover played What Time Is Love on a Saturday in the summer of 1990, and my fate was changed forever. Uh it was the track's second released live at Transcendental ver- uh, version with a rap by Isaac Bello and also included crowd cheering, a siren sound and a high-pitched chorus and this amazingly hypnotic synth sequence that we later secretly used on dozens of scooter tracks. What always fascinated me was how the KLF created their own megalomaniac world with a heavy, healthy dose of irony. It was all very ambiguous, anarchic, uh, smart and funny. They released studio recordings that sound like they've been recorded in a stadium, which they also marketed as such. I mean, Transcendental was their studio. Scooter's very own Hyper Hyper also later on included massive crowd cheering. Mm. And to this day, our liner notes always included surreal claims like made at Sheffield Underground Studios 1, 2, 3, 4, 5, 6, 7, 8, as if everything was recorded in eight different studios with superhuman amounts of gear and effort. In the past, I even wrote in London. It wasn't until years later that I actually read the manual, How to Have a Number One the Easy Way by Drummond and Cauty. I was proud to realise that Scooter had followed most of the rules in the book without even knowing of its existence. I was especially amused by the parts about the singer having to have be the greatest asshole imaginable. <laughs> but that's another story. Wow. Around 2000, we read an interview where Bill Drummond was asked who he saw as our successors. When I read the name Scooter, I couldn't believe it. There was always been this suspicion amongst music and, and musicians and fans that KLF were true mass points by Scooter. When Ramp, the logical song, made it into the UK and Australian charts, our English label was approached by a number of people demanding that they admit that KLF were us. I couldn't imagine more flattering praise. Oh, <laughs> that's kind of adorable. That's really yeah. sweet. So it Kind of just shows that actually Scooter, uh, while they look like they, I mean, the music is very dumb, but I think they yeah. are following a lot of what they do. Like here is Hyper Hyper. I remember buying this on a cassette when it came out and it is, has a lot of the same stuff going on for it. Hyper Hyper. 
There you go. So what about Maniac 2000? Where does that fall in the lineage here? Oh, yeah. I mean, that's probably and not on Spotify, isn't it? Yeah, maybe maybe too high of a BPM to truly qualify. But maybe uh, maybe uh, I have to check that. And only a hit in this country. Huh? (laughs) Only a hit in this country as well. That's true, but that's yeah. okay. That's all right. That's our that's our version of it. Um, yeah, yeah. That's our yeah, Mark McCabe. <laughs> yeah. Oh, yeah. Well, Maniac Two Thousand is uh, apparently one hundred forty eight beat per, per minute. Wow. Wow. Okay. Uh, <laughs> I have to double check that one, but yeah, there is a version of it here that says that. Yeah, one hundred forty BPM over hundred. That's all. That was never that. That's a an outlier mm. of of all of this stuff. But yeah. Look, isn't that just such an interesting story? Oh. A story like no other, a band like no other, a band that are, are still around in a way and still continuing to influence and do things that are, are also bizarre and pop up every now and again. But there you go. Yeah, I think yeah. it's just, they've always fascinated me. And when I realized, when I saw that Resonant Advisor article, I was like, we should do something on the KLF because it's just so interesting. Thank you so and, much for bringing them to the podcast because I didn't know them. I'm now obsessed with them and i love them and i'm gonna read like i want to read their novel like it's all happening um yeah just like true provocateurs pranksters whatever you want to call them but like really artists as well yeah really creative people people i think bill drummond is such an interesting man like Mm. spending time in his company as well you're just like this guy is mad. Yeah. But he's also so interesting compelling and so like he has ideas i think that the things that kind of mind that he has just allows him to make the things that decisions that people wouldn't make normally mm. he makes them and he found a, a collaborator Jimmy Cody to do that and the two of them are on the same uh, wavelength while they maybe don't work together all the time and it, like the documentary uh, Who Killed the KLF says that like he's made riot, uh, Jimmy Cody like make artwork uh, on riot shields and stuff like that mm. they're always doing stuff they're always doing stuff there's the entire pyramid they wanted to make out of people's ashes and all this kind of stuff so it's still provocative but it's definitely outside the box and i think that's something that they have always tried to do and i think to be honest there's a lot of great music there as well like there is like some of it's terrible some of it is terrible but those those three main hits they had man they're like such good uh tracks that three m eternal obviously they are taking you know public enemy hip-hop and trance and house music and you can hear Two Unlimited in that like I said uh, Stock Aitken and Walkerman's one of their acts was Two Unlimited so you can really hear where they're coming from and I think it's still some of it still stands up today definitely and, uh, yeah a truly a truly a visionary artist and people who did their own thing and that is so rare and people who are completely in charge of their own uh, music and career and can't blame anyone else for uh whatever happened with them and they have to live with the consequences like that as they have done and uh yeah just really really interesting that is our story of the klf great thank you so much now if you liked what you heard on this podcast uh patreon.com 
forward slash 909 is where you can directly support us and help us pay the bills and also contribute and uh, take part in a lovely 909 community on discord as well as we always discuss um some lovely people there we do meetups every now and again we share albums that we like and gigs that we've been to uh it's a lovely place on the internet um far away from um uh x twitter uh, where you can actually have nice discussions with people who won't shout at you all the time. Yeah. Um, because that's what I feel like uh, that place has become more than anything else in the last few weeks. So, oh, yeah, I'm gone. Yeah. I'm done. You are gone. Yeah, yeah. So I'm you're gone, on, so. What do you call it? The Blue Sky. sky. Blue Sky is nice. Blue Sky, yeah. I'm, I'm really yeah. enjoying it. Early days of Twitter vibes for that, for sure. Yeah, yeah. It's quite nice, like basically everyone has like between like 100 and 300 followers and just talking to each other and it's nice yeah you don't you don't feel like someone's gonna attack you for saying the wrong thing or something yeah it's good yeah recommend it yeah um there certainly is, uh, if you want to join a place uh, for nuanced discussion, patreon.com for the Discord. Yeah, the Discord. Playlists great. and all the usual uh, live mixes and discounts. We've got some, the Indie Sleaze Night is coming up soon on t- on the 29th of September. Gave out uh, cheaper t- tickets for that on, on Patreon. Um, all sorts of stuff. So look, we would appreciate your support. And put it, also just tell people about this podcast as well. We'd always yeah. appreciate that. That was our episode on the klf andrea thank you so much for thank you, uh, participating and and uh, as ever and yeah we're going to be back next week with a, an interesting chat perhaps um, yeah i won't spoil it just yet in case it falls through but uh, <laughs> i think it's going to happen we're going to ch- chat to a very well-known pop music writer and a musician uh about uh, their work and a particular topic as well so more on that next week so check back in for that uh, not and everything uh, and all that stuff for not on every platform essentially Andrea do you want to plug anything not at the moment no just go well Love that. look after yourselves look after each other be well be well okay everybody be well go for it uh, and, and listen to the KLF for God's less sake less ancient yes <laughs> bye bye Planning for your next trip? 
elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And it's all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com slash pack for free shipping and 365-day returns.